Please be seated. Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to open it now to the book of Romans. Today we are in chapter 1, beginning a brand new series on the book of Romans. So get used to turning there. You may be doing it for a year and a half. But who knows if we live and do well. Now, uh, I'm excited about this particular book and this message. And so we're just going to do exactly what Paul does in the book of Romans. Uh, not waste any time. Uh, just uh, hit the ground running with the book of Romans. Here now, God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, it's printed for you on the screens. And uh, so there are a number of ways you can access the Scripture, but I want you to pay attention to it because that's pretty much what the message is going to be is an explanation and application of Scripture. Every week we start by saying that we are trying, we are tracing out the storyline of the Bible. Because the Bible is not so much a series of disconnected individual stories, each with a little lesson or moral to teach us. Rather, it is a single story telling us what's wrong with the human soul, what God has done to make things right, and how it's all going to work out in the end. Postmodern philosophers like to think they have discovered something new by talking about narratives and meta-narratives. There's nothing new under the sun. Bible predates any postmodern philosopher in France. With that said, hear now the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith, of faith, for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, as we open up this word, um, there is more here than we could ever possibly grasp or understand. But we pray we would grasp what we need to grasp today, and the only way that's going to happen is that you work through us through your Spirit. And so we pray this morning that you would be gracious to us and that we would have a sense that you are speaking to us you do not speak to us most of the time the way you spoke to the apostles. You speak to us through what they have written, and that is your word. 
So we pray that you would cause us to lay aside everything that would hinder us from receiving this word and that you would plant it deeply in our souls so that it would produce fruit that would redound to your glory. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. Now, as we look at this particular text, there are four things I want you to see, and they are in the outline, which is in the bulletin, and you'll also have other ways to access it. The gospel is what Paul is all about. He tells us that in verse 1. The gospel is what the Old Testament is all about. He shows us that too. The gospel is all about Jesus and the gospel issues in the obedience of faith. And so this is the longest introduction of any of Paul's letters. One of the reasons why, we've got a lot of feedback going up here. I'm getting ringing, and I don't think it's angels' wings flapping. Yeah, there. Well, I don't know if it's that or what. Do, do you hear it? Okay. I thought I might be imagining something. Uh, do we need to turn something off? The center speaker? Okay, thank you. Appreciate that, Josh. Now, no ringing? It's not? Oh, okay, good, good. Now, here we go. <laughs> This is the longest greeting that Paul has ever written to any of the churches he wrote. He wrote some 13 letters, depending on what you do with Hebrews. Um, but Paul here wrote a rather lengthy introduction because he'd never, he, he did not plant this church. He did not know these people. Uh, probably Paul is spending the winter in Corinth, and he's there for three months, and during that time, between the years 51 and 55 A.D., he writes this letter to the church at Rome, which wasn't really a church like we have here, uh, a, a church housed in a building, but rather many house churches. And if you know anything about Rome, there were lots of Gentiles there. There was a, a, probably a really healthy Jewish population there, uh, but predominantly Gentiles and predominantly slaves. And so Paul begins by introducing himself and identifying himself with his calling. Uh, the name Paul, which is Paulus in Latin or Paulos in Greek, means little. I don't know if I'd want the name little. <laughs> if I was little, it would be fine. But that's Paul's designated name, the little one. And uh, traditionally, he gives a greeting which includes the writer, the readers, or the audience, and the destination. But he does the first greeting in the first verse and doesn't get to the rest of the greeting till verses 6 and 7 because he's so excited about the gospel. One of the ways you can tell what a writer is doing in a book, in particularly in the New Testament, is read the beginning section, which we're doing this morning, and read the closing section in chapter 16, which is uh, the doxology at the end of the book, and they mirror one another perfectly. And both are saturated with the word gospel. Gospel 
in the original language is the word euangelion. And it means good message or good news. Angelion is for angels. We know they were messengers of God. And so the gospel is the best news you will ever hear. The gospel is not good advice. It's not try to be like Jesus and follow his teachings and do the best you can and hope grace will make up the difference. No, the gospel is good news that something has happened outside of you, something that has forever changed the world. And that gospel is Christ was delivered up for our sins and yet raised again for our justification. And so when Paul speaks of the gospel, he's talking about something his son, the son of God, has accomplished on our behalf by substituting himself for us. What makes us sin is because we substitute ourselves for God in our lives and do whatever the heck we want to do. But what the biblical message is, is that God, the Son, substitutes himself for us and receives the punishment we deserve and gives us a right relationship with God that he alone deserved. He fulfilled all righteousness and gives it to us as a gift. And so Paul begins by identifying himself by three phrases. First, with respect to his master... Second, with respect to his calling or office. And third, with respect to his purpose. First, he identifies himself as a what? Servant. A servant of Christ. Now, this word is the word doulos. You've heard this before. We're all called to be servants of Christ. But in this case, Paul says, I am a slave to Christ. Now, this is one of the great ironies of the Bible. One of the great counterintuitive truths is the only way, and this is so strange to our ears, the only way you will ever be free is by becoming a slave of Christ. The only way you will ever experience true freedom. You know, most of us think, no, no, pastor, being free means I can do whatever I want to, whenever I want to. As much as I want to, until I die. No, that's bondage. That's self-destruction. Paul is now a slave. He has a master he answers to. He has been bought with a price. He belongs to his Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have trusted in him, so do you. He is your Lord. He is your Savior. And so Paul begins by claiming to be a slave of Christ. And in regard to that, he is completely at the disposal of his master. Now, Paul had never been to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome. And the reason why Paul wanted to go to Rome was to build a beachhead for the gospel so he could take the gospel to Spain, which sadly he did not get to do. It got there anyway. But that was his heart's desire. That's why Paul writes this letter and visits this particular church. The second thing he says of himself is that he's called to be an apostle. Now, we know about the 12 apostles. We know on the day of Pentecost they had to replace Judas, and they did. But Paul has 
uh, been designated as an apostle because of his experience, his conversion and calling occurred at the same moment when he was on his way to Damascus to persecute the church, to have people he hated destroyed. He hated Jesus. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And he's on his way to Damascus, and he was struck down, stone blind, by a light. And he heard a voice. And he said, Saul, Saul. That's his Hebrew name. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? That shows you the close connection of Jesus with his church. Persecuting believers is persecuting him because we're in union with him by faith. And so Paul, in his original life as Saul, was in a hurry uh, to totally um, eliminate the church from existence. But something happened to him. God called him. And he did a 180. He turned completely around. And the Christ that he had persecuted, the Christ that he had attempted to destroy the followers of, now became his Lord, now became his raison d'etre, his reason for being. And so as a result of that, he's turned completely around, and he regards his, himself as among a very unique group who speaks for God. Why does Paul use the apostles' uh, term? He uses it for credibility and for credentials. Why should you listen to Paul? Why should you care what he has to say? You know, we live in a relativistic culture. Nobody thinks anybody has any authority anymore. And the only place you can find authority anymore is in this book. Because it is God speaking. And so Paul claims that when I write what I write, it is God moving me by his Holy Spirit, using me, my life, my experiences, my personalities, to speak to you. He only has one personality. I think I made that plural. But the third thing is the one that gets me. This is why I'm in such love with the Apostle Paul. Um, he, he, you could call it a bromance maybe, but I, he's one of my heroes. He's been set apart for what? The gospel. Previously, when he was persecuting the church, he was set apart for the law of God. He thought persecuting the church was obeying God and that uh, followers of Christ were lawless people. They deserved to be excluded. And so he thought he was obeying God, and with zeal beyond what any of us would know in human life, he was so driven to undo the church. And then he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, and his life turned around, and now he has been set apart for the preaching of the gospel, bringing the gospel to the nations. See, that's what happens when you meet Jesus. You become excited about sharing the good news that you yourself have experienced for the first time. And so the glory of it is Paul identifies himself immediately saying, I am all about the gospel. The gospel is the good news. I am set apart to uh, proclaim it. You know, uh, some of the TV preachers I watch, I call them the 
professional wrestlers of Christianity. Some of the uh, TV evangelists I've had to watch on television just to check out what people are saying and preaching these days think because they stayed at a Holiday Inn last night they can get up and teach. But no, you have to be called. That calling is both internal and external and is validated, and that is who Paul is. And so he is a messenger for Christ. Then he turns and begins to talk about the fact that this gospel he preaches is nothing new. It is the fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament as God dealt with his people Israel always intending that Israel was to be a light to the nations. God never intended for it to stop with Israel or be completed with Israel. Rather, Israel was to be a mediator of the gospel to the rest of the nations. And so everything we see in the prophets prepare us for, although they didn't understand there would be two comings, although they didn't always weren't clear about what they heard, his coming has revealed to us that he comes the first time as a suffering uh, savior. He will come the second time as a lion, as a king to claim his world. And so that's what the Old Testament is about. I could say more about that. We have time limitations. God promised beforehand the Old Testament foreshadowed and anticipated the gospel. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and me, between the woman, her seed, and my seed, and he shall crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. That is the very first uh, placement of the gospel in the New Testament. The gospel is from God. And so, on the road to Emmaus, Christ finds two very discouraged, this is the risen Christ, finds two very discouraged followers. And he shows them that uh, through the text and through the scriptures that they all point to him, his person, and his work. So the whole Bible is about the good news of Jesus Christ. But the gospel is also about Jesus and this is probably the most important section of this greeting that we see here. Notice that he says, there are two important claims made about the Son. And they are made leading to the climactic declaration that he is Jesus Christ our Lord. Scholars say that verses 3 and 4 in chapter 1 are either creedal information, a confessional formula, or even a hymn written concerning the Son and his primary place uh, in redemption. There are two participle clauses that follow uh, uh, that seem almost antithetical to one another. First, he was appointed, and according to the flesh... Uh, and according to the spirit of holiness. First, he is described as a descendant of David. We just finished a series of sermons on David, and we saw time and time again how David was a type of Christ. But David illustrated that someone greater than David must come. And so Christ's genealogy is filled with the line of David, and he is the one who is to come. And in his flesh... 
here, not the sinful nature, but just human nature. He was a descendant of David, and he became the basic uh, messianic ex expectation in the Old Testament. The fulfillment of that hope was foundational to the gospel that Paul preached. The qualifying phrase, according to the flesh, is rendered so far as his human nature is concerned or as to his earthly life. The next clause characterizes the Son of God by reference to another huge event that we celebrate today who was appointed to be the powerful Son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Why are we celebrating today? Because he is risen. Where is he? He is in glorified bodily form at the right hand of the Father. He is exalted above all creation. He is the Lord of all. He is the master of the universe. That's who he is. And in his earthly pilgrimage and in his earthly life, his glory was pretty much veiled. The only time we ever uh, witnessed or, or his glory was seen was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when for a moment the Lord lifted the veil and the three apostles, James, Peter, and John, were there, to witness the glory of God in the person of Christ. And so Jesus is the God-man. Now, this resurrection didn't cause Jesus to become God's son. Let's clear that up right away. There is no suggestion of what's called adoptionism. And I've heard this more than I can tell you, that Christ somehow became the divine son at the resurrection. His appointment and installation is clarified when the expression in power is used. That wasn't uh, the moment he became the son. He is the son of God preexistent. He became. He became human flesh. John 1 tells us of the incarnation. It wasn't that Jesus never was and he came into being during his incarnation in the womb of Mary, but rather he is very God of God. He has always been before the face of the Father, pouring out love and glory to one another. And he came, he came, and was in the womb of Mary, became incarnate, and as a result uh, was qualified in every way to be our Savior. So, in verses 3 and 4, it's not from a human Messiah to a divine son, but from the son as Messiah to the son as both Messiah and powerful reigning son. The expression resurrection from the dead may be understood as instrumental by the resurrection from the dead or time reference from the time of the resurrection from the dead. He is now exalted as Lord and power. The Westminster Confession of Faith addresses this subject this way. It speaks of both the humiliation of Christ and of the exaltation of Christ. And his humiliation was becoming incarnate and living on this planet for 33 years in poverty, glory veiled. He was uh, not esteemed. He was... Uh, not regarded as anyone but from lowly Nazareth. His glory was pretty much veiled. 
We saw it Friday night at the crucifixion. We saw on our Good Friday service a lot of his glory pouring through at the cross. But now his glory is no longer veiled. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's just waiting on the word to come back. Why is the resurrection so exciting? It means this. The powers of the age to come have penetrated this current age. The Bible calls it the new age, not like new age mysticism, but the new age, the age of the Lord who will come back and consummate all things. Uh, we will get new bodies. We will be glorified. We will dwell with them forever. The new Jerusalem shall descend from heaven. There'll be no more tears in our eyes. And the glory of God will fill the earth. And we will rejoice forever in his presence. That's why we're excited today. We've just tasted the first fruits of that. But one day we will see it and know it fully. And our lives will never be the same. And that's why we're cheering. You know, people always say things to me like this. Well, why does God wait so long? Why don't he do something about it right now? He has done something about it. And he is doing something about it. And he will do something about it. His kingdom has come, but not fully. One day it will fully come, and there will be joy, unspeakable, full of glory and bliss. So, we have hope because of his resurrection from the dead. One last thing about the resurrection before we move on to one last important point, and that is this. Uh, the resurrection, Romans 4, when we get there, will tell us that Christ was delivered up for our sins. The Lord laid all we like sheep have gone astray. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You remember Abraham in the Old Testament. Abraham was told by God to offer his son Isaac on the altar at Mount Moriah. Now you have to understand Abraham's son was someone he had waited for up into his 90s till he was 99. When he finally got the son, then he realized the promises God made him were going to be fulfilled, but wait until you're 99 is a long time. And so God tells him to take this son who represented to Abraham everything God had ever promised him in life. And so he trudges his way up. And he makes Isaac carry the wood on his shoulders for the sacrifice. And as they're going up in the mountain, Isaac looks at his dad. He's probably around 14 years old and says, where's the ram? Where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, God will provide a sacrifice. Do you know what Abraham knew? The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham knew if he offered his son, cut his throat, burned him up, he and the boy were coming back down the mountain. He knew that. How do you know that? I don't know, but he knew it. It's not crazy that God asked him to do it. It's crazy that Abraham even considered doing it. But when he goes up and he ties the boy to the altar, and it's getting real, okay? And he pulls out the knife, and he's ready to cut his th son's throat so he'd be offered. God stops him, stays in his hand, and says, there's a ram uh, tangled up in the bushes offer that ram now I know that you trust me now I know that I have your heart 
because Isaac was Abraham's only. He was an idol in the heart of uh, Abraham, and Ab Abraham needed that idol removed as the father of the faithful. But that very promise that God made, when it came to his son, God didn't offer something else. He offered his son. In the covenant made with Abraham, he, in Genesis chapter 17, he shows him all, calls him in a torch, is there rep a theophany representing the presence of God. And he tells Abraham to take these animals and cut them apart and lay them down uh, on either side of a, of a pathway. And he tells Abraham, uh, he shows Abraham by the torch going through these pieces that this is what will happen to you if you fail to keep my covenant. But the only one who walked through the pieces was the theophany, the very presence of God. God is saying, I will take the curses of the covenant. I will be the one to die. And so Yahweh, the person of his son, comes, sheds his blood. He is delivered up. God did not stay his hand. God poured out his wrath upon his son. He judged him fully and completely condemned him, forsook him so that we could know him. And he did that, and Christ died. But on the third day, he was gloriously raised again. Now, why is that such good news? Because it is God's stamp of approval on the person and work of Christ which says everything is paid in full. If you are a Christian, you will never be punished for your sins. Never. There's no double jeopardy with God. Christ has been punished for your sins. God does discipline us. God does test us. We do suffer, but never for our sin. Christ died for our Don't you take that away from him. He died for our sins and shed his blood. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God forever certifying, validating, and saying, we've been bought with a price. It's paid in full. We forever belong to him. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is the gospel in reference to uh, the obedience of faith. Now, the event of the resurrection was the beginning of the exalted life of Christ. Who is the spirit of holiness? What is that? That is the Holy Spirit. This passage teaches the Trinity. There is one essence and being in God, three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here the Holy Spirit is mentioned as the one who saw to it that the resurrection occurred. Um, so Jesus Christ our Lord is the description of the one who is the content of the gospel. He is the status in our lives as Lord and Master. But he mentions later the obedience of faith and uh, we're coming close to being done his essential task that is of the the Lord Jesus Christ was to bring uh, about the obedience of faith which is a pregnant expression and so commonly the source of obedience the obedience that comes from faith or is it the obedience that consists of faith? And both of those are supported in Paul's letters. 
Paul says, for neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, that is keeping the law or breaking the law, has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. That is, once we receive Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, once he indwells our hearts, our lives change because the very faith that unites us to Christ is a faith that expresses itself through love. And what is obedience? It is the keeping of God's law. It is the keeping of his commandments. And what is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor to, as yourself. How do you know you're a Christian? You know you're a Christian if you look at your life and see that you have a strong desire to obey. And that obedience expresses itself through love for other people. Love for people who are not like you. Love for people who irritate you. Love for people who annoy you. Love for people who you'd rather not be around. And I have to be the pastor of all of them. <laughs> and I'm just as annoying and unlovely as anybody I see. See, that was the one that knocked me down when I went, well, some people think you're that way. I said, that cannot be. <laughs> but that's what it is. You see, everybody gets worried about salvation by grace alone because they're going to say, well, if people are really saved by doing nothing but trusting Jesus, won't they live any way they want to? Not if they get it. Not if God regenerates them because at the very same time God declares us justified, he begins the process of sanctifying us, which involves his grace and also our responsibility, which is faith. Faith is huge in the Bible. Faith is simply the empty hand. Faith is simply reaching out to receive God's unmatchless grace or his matchless grace. And so when we receive that grace, how do I know I've received the grace of God? How do I know I'm a real Christian? Because in my heart of hearts, I want to be 100% obedient to him. That's real faith. And obedience to the gospel is simply faith itself. And so rather than trying to bifurcate these two, as some theologians try, I see them as two sides of the same coin. And so Paul is all about the obedience of faith. Genuine Christian faith, or genuine faith in Christ, leads to a life of obedience. Finally, Paul closes in verse 6 and 7. I'm omitting a little bit here because of time. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Wow. <laughs> loved by God. You ever hear a preacher use the word beloved? First time I've heard that, I said, get off of the King Jimmy E's, why don't you? Get rid of the these and thous. And I know we sing them in the hymns. But the hymns are the music of the hearts of the saints for generations. And we respect that. And, uh, but it, it, it may not be more reverent to you, but to some people it is more reverent to do it that way. But beloved means the ones whom God adores. How could it be? I know me a little bit. How could God adore me? 
how could he rejoice over me with singing? How could he see me, Lord Jesus, see me as his bride, who he wants to ravish and love? But that is who I am because I'm united to Christ. So are you. If you're united to Christ, we are the bride of Christ. We are so dearly loved, deeply loved, and his love will not let you go. His love will not leave you alone. He will not forsake you. He will not stop. He will keep coming and coming and coming. That's who he is. But also, he refers to them as what? Loved by God and what? Called to be saints. Now, as I understand it, some in the Roman tradition believe that saints are super Christians, that they've either experienced some kind of unusual, miraculous event in their life, or they're set apart from the ordinary. The rest of us are just plebeians, but there are really super Christians that are called saints. Uh-uh. That's not what that means. We already are saints. Say, Pastor, are you sure? Do you really know me? We are saints. Why? Because we've been set apart to be holy. And God will spare nothing, nothing in your life to make you holy. You think life's all about being happy? No, it's not. Let me rain on your parade a minute. It's all about being holy. The holier we are, the more genuinely content and happy we are. But that's what it is. We're called. Now, that word called to me is one of the most important in the Pauline corpus or his writings. That word call, kletos, means the internal call. There is an external call, like I'm standing up here preaching today, you're listening, sort of, kind of, but it's all just sort of going around you, over your head, you're thinking about what you're going to have for lunch, you're thinking about an Easter egg hunt. You're thinking about what you're going to do next week. Are you thinking about filing your taxes because it's getting late? I know what you're thinking about. I used to sit out there. And so the call is external, but when you come here, you sit here, you listen, sort of, kind of, you leave, nothing happens. But when the internal call comes, the Holy Spirit of God raises you spiritually from the dead. He quickens you. He makes you alive to the things of God. You enter a whole new realm of existence by his power. And you will never be the same. Now, some of us are pretty good at quenching the Spirit. And we're pretty good at grieving the Spirit. But we need to be walking in the Spirit, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit of God. And so why are we so happy today? He is risen. He is risen indeed. And that is the only hope we have. Even if our nation falls apart and no longer becomes, even if it divides, even if it's conquered by someone else, which you say, don't ever say that, Pastor Tim. Oh, I don't want that. I don't desire that. But there's only one thing I can count on. He's coming back. And he's going to get me and you and all of us who are in him. 
and the celebration that ensues, the marriage supper of the Lamb, will go on forever. Won't you come to Jesus today? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible. It truly is your word. It speaks to us. It has feet. It runs after us. The Bible has hands. It lays hold of us. We thank you for the freedom we enjoy in Jesus Christ. Everything else is bondage. Everything else is self-destructive. Everything else makes us small and little and nothing. But we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you give us grace, that you do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so, Lord, we thank you for what we have heard this morning, and we pray as we continue to worship, we will give as those who are absolutely overwhelmed, almost to the point of being undone in a good way about how good and gracious you are to us. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen.